0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Bruce O'Neill. I'm the senior pastor, which means often it is my responsibility to read a text from the Bible and to explain it. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can uh, turn to James. It's almost to the very back of the Bible. Or you can pull one of the Bibles that are in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, It'll be the version in which I'm reading out of on page 1290, or you can follow along on the screen. And and many of you have digital devices that can can do as fast. Again, it's going to be James chapter 4, just the first eight verses. Give attention to the Word of God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts. Father, we, we recognize the text before us can be hard to hear. It strikes at the very heart. Not just our behaviors. And so we're going to need grace. Grace to hear. Grace to understand. Grace to believe. Grace to obey. Grace upon grace. And so we ask you in this place, meet us here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week... Isaac uh, opened the scriptures from chap- the end of Chapter Three, and I do want to show you that Paul uh, uh, James is not starting a new conversation he 's carrying on the conversation that uh, you looked at or we looked at together last week where I-, I just want to bring these two points out that Isaac gave, and, and I hope uh, you wrote them down, or at least they 're coming to your mind because they set up so nicely. Uh, these eight verses that we're going to study this morning together. Uh, Isaac said that the first point is that God's wisdom always pursues God's kingdom and finds it. And then it's being contrasted to the world's wisdom because the world's wisdom always pursues man's kingdom and finds the kingdom of Satan. The reason that's important is James isn't going to start and and go a new direction. He's now going to provide us a metaphor to understand that wisdom. And that metaphor can be fairly offensive. So let's just admit that up front, that I'm going to, or at least James is going to, be offensive. He's a pastor, and you would think pastors would be sweeter than this. But we're getting a redefinition of what a pastor is from James. And James is not new here. James' concern about his church is what Jesus said to the crowds, particularly his disciples who were just coming around him in Matthew 6 when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. He's not saying that... uh, uh, that you can seek it along with the kingdom of man. He, he says there's an order here. There's a priority of our lives that determines that if we've got two choices, to follow the kingdom of God or follow the kingdom of man, that we're going to choose the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying back in Matthew and James said in chapter 3. And now he's going to say, I need you to, to get a clear understanding of this. So I'm going to give you a metaphor That is used throughout the scriptures about the people of God. It's in verse 4. And it says, you, adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's hard. That's something you expect if you went to a tent revival somewhere or you were in a gathering on the street and a preacher got up on a soapbox and began to harangue you. You adulterous people. But James is talking to the church. He's talking to us. And he says, but you are an adulterous people. In the original language, I know it's three words here, you adulterous people, but in the original, it's one word. It's in the feminine and literally should be translated adulteresses. Why? Why why is James taking the feminine form of adultery and using it here? I think, and this is my hope, that you will see, and it is my job to prove to you, That this is one of the most encouraging things that will ever be said to you. To call you an adulterous people. The reason is, throughout the Bible, from the very beginning, Genesis 2, all the way to Revelation 19, 20, and 21, one of the key themes or key metaphors that God has used to talk about the relationship between himself and his people is one of marriage. From the very beginning, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And that means that James is tapping into that theme. He's tapping in and he's saying, okay, I need you to understand something. This isn't out of the blue. I'm I'm faithful and orthodox here. I'm going to talk about marriage, but in a way that might seem offensive. Because in order to show you the beautiful life, I've got to show you the ugly life. That is, there are two ways to show something beautiful. You can show the beautiful thing itself and appreciate the beauty in of itself, or I can show you something that's the opposite. It's ugly. It's something that's offensive. And that will draw you to the beauty or, or really compel you from the ugly toward the beautiful. And that seems what James has cho- chosen here by telling us about the adulteress. You see, throughout the Bible, from Genesis chapter 2, you can stop off in Solomon where he has that bedroom poetry that people want to avoid because it's, it, it, you can't read in public. To Psalm 62, where it says, As the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so the Lord rejoices over you. In chapters 19, 20, and 21 of Revelation, it is about a feast. And it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. Where the church is presented in her purity before her husband. And for all of eternity, where the food never runs out, where the wine never stops flowing, there will be a party. Because we will be finally brought physically into the presence of our Savior. This is what John Eldritch had to say in his book, The Sacred Romance. He said, our relationship with God is like a romance. God is always wooing us with unparalleled beauty, intriguing relationship, and wonderful adventure, but hate those. We often reject his advances in order to pursue career, to find fulfillment, and to seek other lovers who we think will make us happy. Here's the point that I'm trying to make, that I think James is trying to make, by talking about us in terms of being an adulteress. You cannot be the adulteress of God without first being the bride of Christ. Don't miss that. The only adulteresses are the brides. And that matters. Because our unfaithfulness cannot negate his faithfulness. And because he is faithful to the marriage, when we are unfaithful to the marriage, the marriage is not broken. That's what James is saying in our text. But let me do a little defining of terms, and then how we can break free. The first term I want to define is found in verse 1, passions, where it says... What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. That word passions is hedonai. We get the word hedonism from it in English. And hedonism is the relentless pursuit of self-gratification without respect for potential consequences or the effect on others or even the effect on our relationship with God. That is, we're willing to sacrifice all of those things or let's, let's just say that we're naive and we don't think what we're doing is gonna have an effect on all those things, but we want what we want when we want it. The second word that I need to define is one for desires. He says in verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know what a desire is. I don't have to define what a desire is. But one of the things that James does in this text that doesn't show up in the English because it would, it would seem odd is that the word for desire has a prefix. Epi. E-P-I. And Epi means over. And so what's really written here is you over desire. And because of your over-desire and do not have, you murder. He's adding that prefix because an over-desire is making your good desires into ultimate desires. And this is what the Old Testament prophets and what Paul in the New Testament refer to as idolatry. We tend to think that that is a primitive form of religion where they made statues or they venerated some one and they worshipped that and that's what it means. But both the Old Testament and Paul says that idols is taking good things, good people, and good places and making them their ultimate things and ultimate people and ultimate places. A way to think of it it is you were all born with an umbilical cord. And after birth, they detach that umbilical cord from your mother. Well, imagine spiritually that you retained that umbilical cord and you keep plugging it in to other things and other people and other places in order to draw life. That's the imagery that we have here is that we're constantly taking our umbilical cords and plugging them in to good things and good people and good places and drawing life from them instead of from God. Another way to think of it is you have a bucket of your soul and you keep putting it in. I keep putting it in different wells trying to draw life-giving water when the only life-giving water in the cosmos is Jesus Christ. This is what James means by spiritual adultery against the only true lover of our souls. And therefore, the adulteress in us is lured into the forbidden bedroom by these false lovers. They're good things. And typically they're good people and typically they're, they're good places. And you can, you can make all of those things to where we draw life from them. What he's talking about is a disorienting of our, our loves, a disordering them. That is, God's not saying you can't love other people or you can't love Annapolis or you, you can't love beautiful things. He's saying that there's an order to Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added. It's about priority. It's about where your loves are ordered. And people in ministry are just as susceptible as the people to whom they minister. We ministers, we, we are, we're concerned about our reputations. We want to be loved. We want to be known. We want to be respected. Just like you do, we turn people and places and things into the things that we draw life from. James is describing a beautiful life here but giving us the ugly life. A beautiful life is one whose loves are rightly ordered. And the way he describes them is to show us how our loves are out of order. They're disordered. Let me give you a couple of diagnostic questions to help you figure out if you have an infidelity issue in your life. First, ask yourself, what are my must-haves? If I don't have this... I will be unhappy or unfulfilled if I can't continue to have this place, if I can't continue in this job, if I can't continue with this spouse, if I can't have obedient children, if I can't have smart children, if I can't have good-looking children, and it's great if I can have all of those things. What are my must-haves? James calls that in verse 2 coveting. Second question, what keeps you up at night? That is, when, at night, when you're laying there in bed and you're thinking about these people, places, and things that keep you up at night, what are those things? They tend to be because they are being threatened with loss. It could be health. It could be a job. It could be a, a rebellious uh, a child or spouse It could be relationship at church. Lots of things fall into that category. And what James calls it in verse 2 is anger. We're kept up at night with anger. And the other side of that coin called worry. And that's what keeps us up at night. Dan Allender puts it this way in his book. When people do not give us what we want we make people pay. Because if you threaten one of my precious, I will fight back. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. One a little funnier than the other. One is when I moved here 12 years ago, I brought a a dog with me, a, a bay retriever, not the little white one that Everybody struggled with. But a real beautiful uh, bay retriever who loved everyone and everyone loved bay. But she had an issue. She had an idol in her life. And it was really hard to get this idol out of her life. You see, she was a Katrina dog. And we adopted her because her family had to leave her behind. And thousands of other dogs across the south were left because the hotels would not allow the owners to bring their dogs to, to save them during Katrina because it would radically change these hotels that they were going to, really nice ones. And so they had to release them and let them fend for themselves through a terrible storm into the aftermath afterwards to hunt for food. And she did. To the point where food became, and having food, possessing food, and hoarding food, and eating food, and gorging on food became her idol. To the point where this beautiful dog was beautiful until you tried to take something from her that she wanted to eat. We had mids in those days and, and this one mid couldn't get out during Snowmageddon. And so he was trapped at our house and I don't know how the pizza boy delivered the pizza. But he ordered a pizza and, and they, were, they were getting ready to eat it but he didn't know Bay's idol. And Bay ate his pizza. And the moment he tried to wrest what was left of this pizza out of the mouth of this poor bay retriever, she bit him. That's proven a point, isn't it? That our idols bite back. John 11 is like that. Jesus has come to the tomb of his friend Lazarus to raise him from the dead been dead for four days I'm sure by then he's starting to stink Jesus calls him and says come out of the tomb and he comes out of the tomb and and though there's some celebration there's a group of people that are not celebrating that should have been celebrating it's not every day you see the dead rise but instead they gather together and they begin to plot that day it says for for the murder of Jesus you see Their idol of reputation led to them to kill the only one who could rescue them from the idol. You don't mess with idols because idols bite back. And yet every day of our lives, every moment of our lives, God is asking you to give him your idol. And we literally bite the hand that feeds us. When people don't give us what we want... When God doesn't give us what we want, we make them pay. And this, let me use a theological word here, is stupid. Let me give you one of the greatest theologians of my time, John Wayne. He said that life is tough and is a lot tougher when you're stupid. Herman Melville He's a better theologian than John Wayne. Put it this way. Heaven and mercy on us all. Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we're all dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. James is trying to get us not to be offended, but to repent. He wants us to recognize that the beginning of repentance is to recognize that we are God's adulterous bride sadly in need of mending so how can we how can we leave those lovers that are beside jesus well paul simon told us 50 ways to leave your lover you just slip out the back jack make a new plan sam you don't need to be coy roy just get yourself free up on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and set yourself free. We don't have time for 50 ways to leave your lover. I'll give you three. First, ask. You know what James has been saying over and over again? He who lacks wisdom and idolatry is because we lack wisdom from God. The wisdom of God pursues the kingdom of God always and finds it. The wisdom of man pursues the, the the kingdom of God and finds the kingdom of Satan always. Verse 2 says, "You do not have because you do not ask." We need to tap into the only power that can deliver us from our own idols. The source of spiritual adultery is a lack of wisdom from God. And therefore God says, ask and I will give. It is a failure to put the kingdom of God first. And so we need to join the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. I think sometimes I don't ask because I don't want to know the answer. You're not like that. Secondly, if the first one is to ask, the second is to surrender. Verse 3, you ask, but you don't, you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You want to use your asking to spend it on your own passions. On your own idols. Like the husband who goes to his wife and says, Hey sweetie, I still love you. I'm still committed to this marriage. But, you know, I just want to date around. Not not many, just a couple. You know, I, I know God wants me happy. And, you know, I'm sort of happy in our marriage. But I think I'll be even more happier if I have more people that I can include in this love. Now, we would say that person is what? Use the theological word. Stupid. Every kid is going to their parent. Mom, we don't say that word. <laughs> Instead, you and I need to be asking for a deeper intimacy, reconciliation, and renewal. That's what the psalmist says. Delight in the Lord and he will what? Give the delight and desires of your heart. You, see, you hear the order there? He doesn't say... He doesn't say, God's going to give you the desires of your heart. And because of that, you're going to want to delight in him. Delight in the Lord. Because when you delight in the Lord, he changes your desires. He aligns your desires with his desires. And you know that's true in marriage. When When you truly love someone you begin to conform your desires to their desires and marriages that get into trouble and we all our marriages get into trouble is when we insist on what? That her desires conform to my desires. And we do the very same thing with our God. James will say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We need to align our desires, but not ask God in our prayers, would you finally get on board with the program? That's what he's been saying with us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let me give you a third way to leave your lover. If the first is to ask, the second is to surrender. The third is to fall, fall in love with him again. My wife sometimes really struggles with our James study because there's only little bit of nuggets every so often of the gospel. James is not effusing with the gospel. He's so concerned about where their heart is. He he gives just these little nuggets and here's one of these nuggets in verse six. He says, God gives more grace. You hear what he's saying? He's been calling us an adulteress of God, we have these false lovers, these idols who are, are competing against our first love, our, 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 our purpose for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, I know you're going to need my grace for that. And so I'm going to give you not just grace, but more grace. No person, no place, no thing can ever love you the way God does. In fact, You try crossing one of those things, one of those places, one of those people, and they're going to bite you. Because idols bite back. But not God. He gives more grace and more grace and more grace, even while we are failing Him and being faithless. Grace upon grace. Now you name a God who does that. Who while the bride, his bride is pursuing other lovers. They're literally in the arms of another lover. And he woos that lover, his lover back. Grace upon grace. Can I give you just one reason before we go to the Lord's Supper. Of why you need to give up your lovers. Why I need to give up mine. It says it in verse 5. God is jealous. He's not jealous of you or the lovers that constantly beckon you to their bedroom. He's jealous for you. That the Holy Spirit would have intimate relationship with you by indwelling you. That's why marriage is the Image that he's using here because it's in that intimacy of marriage that it's not just a picture of your union, but is the picture of your union with Christ. What is God's love like? You know, it wasn't until I was 29 years old that I found this book in the Bible. It's called Hosea. I had heard a little bit of the story but had never read the story until I was 29 years old. And I was amazed that God would have this story in his Bible. But here is God coming to his prophet in Israel and saying, I need you to know what it's like to be the God of my people. What it's like to be the husband to my wife. And so I need you, the single prophet, to go and marry the town prostitute that everybody in town has used and abused. I need you to go and marry her and make her your wife, the one that has a horrible reputation. And I want you to tell you what, tell you what your wife is going to do after you marry her. She's going to stay with you for a little while. But then that wandering eye, she's going to begin to return to her previous profession And prostitute herself out, even while married to you, while still in your wedding bed. That's my people. That's what my people do to me. I need you to know that's what it feels like to be the God of my people. That even though I'm wedded to them, they're constantly climbing out of my bed into someone else's. And I'll tell you what I want you to do, I want you to woo her. Even while she's in the arms of her lovers. I want you to go to food line and I want you to fill up your bags of grocery, and I want you to leave it at the door of her lover. Don't leave a note, don't leave a gospel track, just leave the groceries. So she's cared for, even while she's chasing another lover. That's my church. That's, that's my people. I want you to know what it's like to be me. And I tell you what she's going to happen to her is the last lover is not going to want her anymore because she's been used and abused and she's going to be thrown out with the trash. She's going to be put on the auction block that anybody wants to make her a slave because that's all she's good for now. I want you to go and buy her back. Because that is what I'm going to do for my bride. I'm not going to divorce her. She deserves it. She's been unfaithful. I'm going to be faithful to my vow. And I'm going to buy her back. I'm going to send my son as the ransom, as the payment to make her mine. And and I want you to take your robe... And I want you to put it on her nakedness just like my son is going to take his righteousness and cover the bride of Christ so that when I see her in her wedding gown, I am going to marvel. I'm going to rejoice over her because I need you to know what it's like to be me. That's the story of Hosea. Isn't it amazing that God would put that story in his Bible? A lot of people are going to open that book for the first time. I think Suf John Stevens, who wrote a story, a a song about John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer of Chicago. And and, and this is why I think it's so hard to be us. When we hear this story, immediately objectify. We immediately talk about the people outside the building, outside in our community. And James is not worried right now about those people. He's a pastor. He's concerned about his people. And we want to say the same thing. We want to be able to say, in my best behavior, I am really like him. These are the last lines of the song. Look beneath the floorboards to the secrets I hid. He understands the lesson of Hosea. And what is the lesson of Hosea? God turns whores into eaves. Don't miss that. I know it's offensive, guys, to be called a bride. But it's really offensive to be called the whore. And that's what James calls us. She will be naked and unashamed. Heaven and mercy on us all. I love this line. Presbyterians and pagans alike. Melville was a Presbyterian. For we are dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. This is the beautiful life. And now you and I... Have this table. I want you today to consider it our rehearsal dinner. I have been to literally hundreds of them. And for the outsider, they can be quite boring. (laughs) Because let me tell you what goes on in a rehearsal dinner. Typically, the family and friends of the bride will tell stories. When she was five, she was so cute. Or when he was ten... He was so athletic. And the stories go on. But the real part of the rehearsal dinner is to tie all of these individual stories into the story of the two becoming one. One new humanity. And so all of their beautiful, cute stories that are, that are really inside stories become, have their meaning and purpose when they're told into the context of the story. That's what we do in the rehearsal dinner of the Lord's table. Everybody in this room is going to come forward and you bring your story with you. Story of success and failure, of beauty and ugly, things that you're proud of and things you're ashamed of. And you get to put them into the story that God our Father says to you, You are mine. And though you have been an adulteress, you are my bride. I love you. I woo you. I want you. And you see, our stories make absolutely no sense until they're in that story. This is the best love story ever told. That we have a God who turns gomers into eaves. And presents us as his own. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your beauty and your grace and your mercy that you celebrate over us, even while we are still in the arms of our lovers. That has got to be incredibly offensive to you. And yet you have given grace upon grace, more grace. I pray, Heavenly Father, as we in this room can pile up, even in our minds, figuratively, spiritually, the pile of the idols and have you destroy them. Give us the wisdom that we can see them and burn them alive. Father, give us the ability to surrender to your kingdom and your righteousness first. And help us, Father, oh, help us to fall in love with you again. Particularly those in this room who, in their hearts, have been far from you, who the struggles of this life have left them dry, bone dry. Please give them the waters of the fountain that overflows with life. And let this meal be the nourishment of that they need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.